Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash sacred text. Hi, Vanessa, Casper, and Ariana. Hi, Vanessa, Casper, Ariana, and the team. Hi, Casper, Vanessa, Ariana, and everyone on the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. We would like to thank our patrons, of course, Delia Rose, Andrea Vendrick, Danielle P., Senia Christensen, and Cassandra Snyder. Thank you so, so much for your support on Patreon. A big shout out to our local group in Central Virginia, the Virginia Blue Ridgebacks. Love a little bit of dragon vibes coming from the Virginia mountains. It's run by Casey Fear and Beth Brown. So if you want to join them and any local group, just head to the website, harrypottersecrettext.com and click on local groups. We love that you're all getting together. It's the best. This week, we are so, so pleased to be joined by our friend Jolie Doggett, who writes at the intersection of race, gender and pop culture. She's an editor for Zora, a publication for and by women of color, and you can find her blog at JolieDoggett.com. Jolie, welcome to the official show. Hi! It's so crazy being here. It's like listening to the show, and then I'm like, oh, wait, now I have to actually do the show. I have to talk during this time. (laughs) That's right. Eventually, everyone has to work. (laughs) I'm also really excited about the local group in Virginia. I'm from Virginia. I'm from Hampton, Virginia. And like when you said the Blue Ridgebacks, I was like, like the Blue Ridge Mountains? Like in Virginia, you learn a lot of history about the state, like parts you'll never go to. And I'm like, (laughs) I know that. I know what that means. (laughs) 
<laughs> Unlike me, who was like, is it about dragons? I think so. <laughs> it's, it's a joke for everyone. It's a joke for Virginians. It's a joke for Potterheads. It's for all of us. Jolie, can you actually talk? So you and I had an initial conversation months ago where you said, I have this idea for what I want to talk about in terms of the Harry Potter books. Can you just sort of do that pitch Yeah, for the people? Okay, so Harry Potter fans can probably relate to this, but I really love the Harry Potter books, like a lot. <laughs> I've been reading them. Shock, surprise. <laughs> I read them starting when I was nine years old, and I was really intrigued by the idea of Hagrid, like from the very beginning, like how he was described as this big, hairy, menacing person. And as I reread the books every year, I noticed there were more characters who were being described by their hair. And I started just writing them all down and created my own like Harry Potter story, hair stub, like (laughs) H-A-I-R. I just realized that The way they use hair to describe people was determining people's value. Specifically, I saw it really strongly in book five when Umbridge goes to visit Hagrid for the first time and just automatically assumes that he is beneath her. Like she assumes most people are beneath her, but she assumes it's based on his appearance. And I realized it wasn't just Umbridge. Hair played an important role in how other people perceive people. Like we see the Vilas and we see white unicorn hair and we see Albus Dumbledore and his hair being seen as like goodness and purity. We see Professor McGonagall's hair described as like a severe bun. What is a severe bun? Like, what does that mean? <laughs> how is a bun? Like, it's sharp. No, it's a very judgmental bun. It's <laughs> exactly. a bun that goes around and is like, what are you wearing? Right, exactly. Even Hermione's hair, like her hair being described as bushy and wild and mm. basically unkempt, that hair and beauty just aren't really like an important factor to her. We don't see them being important to her until book four in the Yule Ball. Um, but who says it isn't? Like, I personally see Hermione pulling up her hair every day just to get it out of her face so it doesn't catch on fire in potions class. Like, those things are really important. So I just started realizing how color and hair and physical appearance played a role not just in the Harry Potter text. Like, this isn't a concept that J.K. Rowling came up with. It's a concept that exists throughout literature, noticing how we prescribe goodness and evil, like, in a dichotomy and, like, a one thing or another. And a lot of times we visualize goodness and evil based on people's appearances. And I noticed that a lot in book seven this time because I read it. I prepared for class. (laughs) (laughs) And it's funny because it's not like the neater you are, the better, right? There seems Mm -hmm. to be this real resistance of quote unquote, like ultra femme and like caring too much, right? Like lavender, someone who cares too much and pansy, someone who cares too much. And pansy's also racist and horrible, but she's also bad because she cares too much. And Umbridge is too femme. And Harry, ugh, God bless him, his hair is always a little bit of a mess. Exactly. Like, we look at all the people that you name, people that we're meant to see as evil or, in Lavender's case, as ridiculous, like, because they care too much about their appearances. But the writer wants the reader to care more about appearances or else it wouldn't be such a descriptive factor in all the books. Like, when I was reading book seven... I was noticing that every time a character was introduced on the page, they were described in some kind of way. Like goblins who we've met throughout seven books were described yet again as having like bloodshot, beady eyes. And even the Dursleys were described as being piggy all over again, Hagrid, tall, looming, menacing. And 
I noticed that like the main trio wasn't described at all, like ever. And I found myself wondering, I'm like, what do they look like? What are they going through right now? They've been on the road and in the forest this whole time. We never know anything about their appearance. And that's because as the readers, we're always supposed to know how we feel about them. But every time another character is bought into play in the story, we need to, again, have it reintroduce to us how we're supposed to feel about them, how we're supposed to think of them. And I always wonder, like, is that JKR or is that Harry's thought process? Oh my gosh, there's so much in this. First of all, I want to say, I love that you brought us into this conversation with Hagrid because he ends up kind of straddling these two worlds. And in book seven, he kind of succeeds to some extent at like integrating those two. And I was interested to hear from you, like, can you talk about how you think that that journey of physicality and particularly like this question of control over one's own body? Like, how does that change over time through these books? Yeah, we actually talked about this at summer camp, but I remember in the first book, we talked about giving yourself permission to take up space. And I feel like Hagrid was a character who in early on in the text, we found him wanting to take up as little space as possible. He couldn't help but take up a lot of space. He couldn't help but like crush the Dursley's couch in half when he sat on it. Even in the movies, we see it played for last when he pulls like a door off of its hinges by accident. But we see him wanting to fit in as much as possible. But despite all of his efforts, he will always stand out and above and beyond like everybody else that he interacts with. And as the books go on, Hagrid's Size goes from being a hindrance to him, as we're meant to see it in the text, to being an advantage to him. I think that is the lesson of the books is really about like accepting others, like learning to care for others and not like push people away based on what we believe about them, like Mm. based on blood status or race, if we want to like put it out into like a worldly context. Mm -hmm. But I think it's not just about accepting others. I think it's also about accepting yourself. I think that's one of the big lessons that I've, I think most Harry Potter readers have gotten from the books is learning to accept themselves. And Hagrid to me is one of the best examples of someone who we were told who he should be. um, And he was also told who he should be and how he should feel about this person. But he defined himself for himself in the end. Jolie, I feel like this is something that you've hinted at, but it sometimes feels like J.K. Rowling is in charge of these narratives and knows what she's up to. Like in the moment where Pansy calls Angelina's braids snakes. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Snakes are worms. I think it was worms. Worms. Right. Like that is a moment where J.K. Rowling is telling us something about Pansy by the words that she uses to describe Angelina's hair. But then there are other times that it feels as though she is letting her biases become clear by basically saying that, like, Dudley is a bad person because he's fat and Mm -hmm. Aunt Marge is a bad person because she likes to consume more than she, quote unquote, should. There seems to be sometimes where it's a metaphor or elucidating in some meaningful way. And other times it just feels like it is her prejudice that's coming through. Okay, so far be it from me to give J.K. Rowling any excuse for being prejudiced, but I feel as if it's not just her prejudice. I think it is a prejudice that exists in the world, the Mm -hmm. way in which we see people. She is writing 
for us, the reader, and how we already interpret goodness and evil. I mean, we see that in the text. The text itself shows a dichotomy of goodness and evil. Harry is good, and Voldemort's just bad. Like, there's no reason, there's no rhyme or reason. He doesn't know what love is, okay? Like, he's just a bad person. He doesn't, <laughs> he just doesn't understand goodness. I don't understand why someone, he's supposed to be the smartest guy and couldn't possibly think that anyone knew things that he knew. But she didn't come up with the phrase of, like, Dark magic, meaning bad magic. We associate darkness with evil as a mm. human race. Mm. You guys know what I just learned? I just learned that Albus is Latin for white. Yes. <laughs> like there literally right. is a white savior in the text. And we see in the text like all these different things that are light and white being good and things that are dark and in shadow being bad. We, She did not invent these ways of thinking of things as good and bad based on appearance. I think she exploits them in the text. And I think we as a reader need to be better at challenging our ideas of what is seen as good and evil. What is what we're reading and what we interpret say about ourselves in the same way that we're reading Pansy as saying something about herself. I'm not calling anyone out here like racist, (laughs) but I'm just saying we need to think more critically about the information we ingest and why we associate certain things with goodness and evil. I'm not saying she invents them, but she doesn't resist them. No. Right. (laughs) And like other writers do intentionally resist. Big facts. Absolutely factual. Like as Dudley becomes good, he becomes thinner. Oh, that's so true, Vanessa. I didn't even realize that. It's supposed to be funny that like Hagrid is so big and scary and has a pink umbrella like. Yes. And it's little. And I think that she, to, to exactly your point, is exploiting these base things that we have been trained to see in the world rather than any strategic resistance of those ideas. Yeah, I agree. I definitely think that it is her prejudice and it's also our own prejudice that we see. And we she could do a better job of being intentional of writing the text as more complicated. But the real world isn't intentional about seeing us as more complex than what we look like. And I don't think that's JKR's intention at all in writing the text. Like, hey, I want you guys to also examine your internal biases. No, she's just writing. She's just writing what she thinks and what she feels. But I do think it's an invitation to us all to examine our biases and not look at things as so good, evil, black, white, positive or negative, just simply based on appearances. One of the places that feels more nuanced to me is the way in which masculinity is represented in the text. Harry, Voldemort, Dumbledore, Ron, Hagrid, even Sirius, like a lot of these major important male characters are not idealized physically, right? None of them are described as like Adonis bodies, like six pack, you know, classic good looking. I can imagine in other fantasy stories, you would have this heartthrob character, or at least Ron would be this like slightly dumb, but super hot, right? Like sidekick. (laughs) Is there something positive that we can find in the way in which bodies are represented in the text, particularly in that they break some of these kind of characterizations of what masculinity is idealized to be? Yeah, I definitely think there's something maybe not redeeming in the sense, because we also see in the text how much body positivity is just played up for laughs, like with Millicent Bulstrode and with even Fleur's father, who's introduced in the seventh book. He is seen as like, oh, how did a guy short and pudgy like that end up with a woman like her? Like, it's played for laughs. But I definitely think that, actually, I think she wrote about this, like even giving Harry glasses was meant to express his vulnerability, showing that like, 
anyone can be the hero. And I do think that was intentional to be kind of the anti-hero narrative, like not the Odysseus that we're used to or like the big, strong, strapping man that we see in Disney movies that comes and save the princess at the end of the day. But here is a quote unquote regular kid looking normal with his regular friends who look air quotes normal. And so anyone who is air quotes normal can be the hero in a story. But again, I'm always going to bring it back to because I'm a cultural critic. Like, how do we decide what is normal? What like what if Harry and Dudley were entirely switched? I think we would automatically think like Harry's supposed to be the hero of the story because Harry looks as we're conditioned to believe a regular normal body looks and Dudley's body exists on the outside of that. Mm. Like we only really have one character, Hagrid, who exists outside of a physical body, again, dichotomy of like good body, bad body. I mean, I'm sure if we read deeper, we can get into Harry accepting his scar and Hermione accepting her hair. But Hagrid's the most overt example I see of that. Again, I just don't think JKR is that smart, but we as a reader, we're that smart. We can figure out how to read these texts to interpret them in a way that allows us to see people as who they are of value beyond their physical appearance. So can I just treat you like my therapist for a second and tell you something that I'm struggling with right now? Of course. I'm struggling with Ginny right now Mm. because Ginny seems to me to almost be described in the Gone Girl monologue of the cool girl. Like Mm -hmm. she's athletic, but feminine and is beautiful, but doesn't try and is sexual, but not slutty and can eat whatever she wants, but is still thin. And like I'm in the middle of book two right now. And like, I love Ginny. But I'm worried that I love Ginny because she is this, like, idealized woman. The ideal, like, not ultra femme woman, right? And we know, like, Fleur is not it. As beautiful and hot and conventionally whatever as Fleur is, right? Like, so white and blonde that it shimmers. She gets mocked by Mm -hmm. Ginny, Like, that is too femme, and that is caring too much. And so I'm wondering if, like, my love for Ginny comes from a, like, you know, form of reverse feminism, that, like, too femme a person is bad. I think the reason that we see Ginny different than Fleur is because Ginny is, she's, like, an accessible cool girl. Fleur is magically attractive, right? But Ginny, we see as like, oh, she can hang out with the boys. She's good at sports. She tries, but not too hard. Like she, she definitely has like that cool girl aspect. Like over the weekend, I was hanging out with some friends from college, and like they were friends who I had in college or people that I knew in college who I always thought were just so cool, like super like cool people, just because they hung out with all the air quotes right people, or they always wore the air quotes right things. And now we're all sitting around together and. I'm wondering, like, not that they aren't cool anymore, but like, what was it I saw in them that made me feel like I had to be like them in order to be accepted into this group? And I think the reason is because like we we see them as unaccessible solely based on what they appear to be. For anyone who knows Jenny would know that she's super accessible. She's super nice. She's super cool. Not nice to flirt, but she's nice to most people. And like, it's not just how she appears, it's who she is on the inside. And it's who we are on the inside that makes us cool or not. You can be very uncool on the inside, like Voldemort. 
Right. That's such a nice reminder because the things that I love about Ginny are her relationship with Molly, how kind she is to Neville and Luna. Yeah. Yeah. Those are the things you actually, I listen to this podcast all the time. So I know all the things you like about Ginny. (laughs) You don't care about her super shiny hair and her like making out with Harry in her bedroom. You don't care about that. You care about her speaking up for herself against Ron when he's like cornering her in the hallway and trying to slut shame her. Those are the things that make Ginny cool. The real things within her. And I want to be clear, there's nothing, we talked a lot about physical appearance today, there's nothing wrong with being conventionally attractive. There's nothing wrong with having straight white hair or being a white person. There's nothing wrong with having any kind of body. I think, again, the thing that we're supposed to take away from this text is self-acceptance of all the ways in which we can be outside and inside. Julia, I really love this for us to land on that, the the self-acceptance, the acceptance in others. And I'm also really hearing in what you're saying an invitation for us when our mind goes, as it definitely does for me when I'm judging other people by what they look like, either because I'm like, you're so hot or like you look dreadful or like whatever, to try and like shift my attention and be like, okay, that's that's just a lens that's getting in the way of seeing something deeper or truer. Not that they're not important and not real, but like that the object of my gaze should be deeper than just the kind of the surface, I guess. And I'm going to complicate that a little more and say you should think about that in terms of how you look at yourself. And also, I don't take that as an invitation to ignore the physicality of people. I don't want people to look at me and not see my blackness and not see my hair. But I want you to see that and challenge what that seeing made you believe about who I am. And I want you to look at that and look into yourself and see, is she this and what more can she be? And how does my interpretation of who she is impact her life on a daily basis? What is it like to walk through life as a person with a larger body? What is it like to walk through life as a Jewish girl with like noticeably curly hair? What is, I want you to see those things and I want you to challenge your beliefs about those things. Be better than Voldemort, man. Voldemort just looked at things and saw them as like, oh, this is good. This is powerful. This is great. There's no way a woman can defeat me. Like, what is a mother's love? Never understood. I'm like, you read so many books. Like, you never once like picked up a book and was like, oh, moms love their children. Novel concept, but whatever. I just hate the way Voldemort is written as like, oh, there's just good people and bad people. There aren't. Everyone is complex and complicated on the inside. And it's up to us to just get to know each other and ourselves a little better so we can interpret that more clearly. Work harder than Voldemort. Do better. Try harder. New bumper sticker. I think I might be better than Voldemort. (laughs) Julie, before you go, if I can ask you to hang around for our first voicemail, we started to talk about some of these questions around different types of magic in our conversation just now. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on this voicemail from Destiny. Yeah, thanks. I'm really excited. Let's do it. Hi, Destiny. (laughs) Hi, everybody on the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. I'm calling in because I'd like to interrogate the whole idea of dark magic, or the idea that magic exists in a binary of dark and non-dark. I'm especially interested in this topic as someone who is learning about African traditional spirituality, practices of ancestral veneration, root work, and conjure, which my enslaved ancestors retained and developed throughout the African diaspora. These practices were deemed evil in the eyes of colonizer Christianity and are still considered evil by many Christians today, to the point that many Christians are afraid to even be in their presence. 
Of course, the real purpose behind suppressing indigenous religious practices was to prevent them from being used as a source of power for enslaved and oppressed people. Putting aside the naming of evil things as dark, which is always fun for dark-skinned people, in the Harry Potter books, it is not the intentions or context of spells that makes them dark. It is just a predetermined category of magic, even though new spells are always being created. So who determines what magic is dark and what isn't? Some magic is undeniably for the purpose of harming another person, but we see so-called good characters use magic to harm others and even to kill, and yet none of them seems to question the categorization of magic itself as dark. In my opinion, the worst evil in these books is the existence and use of Azkaban, but that state-sanctioned violence of magical imprisonment based on horrifyingly easily falsified evidence is not considered dark magic. So what is the real purpose behind the category? Are there other ways to think about magic that is not sanctioned by the ministry? I'd love to hear your thoughts. I hope you're all well, and I deeply appreciate everything you do on the podcast. Bye. So Destiny, I really love this question. I love the history lesson behind like magic throughout the diaspora. And I love the fact that you noted that it wasn't meant to save anyone in the Christianity sense from like succumbing to evil. It was mostly meant to exert like dominance over these classes that the colonizers saw as an inferior class of people. And I think that actually leads to answer one of the questions you asked, like who determines what's good and what's evil, what spells are classified as dark magic and what spells get you sent to Azkaban? The answer is who's in power. That is always the case. And who is in power in the text really mirrors who's in power in the real world and who was in power in the times where we saw these real life magic practices being suppressed. It's rich white men. (laughs) They're Mm -hmm. the ones in power. They're the ones who determine what's good or evil. And you ask like, how does someone get sent to Azkaban? How does someone get sent to Azkaban for doing certain things? It really is just all a way of exuding power and dominance over a certain class of people that we see as undesirable. And that's a text, that's a term we see in the actual Harry Potter text itself, especially in book seven. People are determined to be undesirable, not because they committed any crimes, just by being muggle-born or just by being a nuisance to the ministry, being a nuisance to the powers that be, being a threat to that power. And we saw that same type of suppression in the slave trade because having community or joy or any type of practice or any type of connection to their homeland, that could one day encourage people to rise up to oppose the power being put over them. So I think that the best way to kind of challenge this dichotomy of like good and evil, dark magic and light magic is also something you said in the beginning is determining how we use that magic. Because I noticed like the Imperious Curse, when it's used by Harry, we don't see it as like a unforgivable action. We see it as a necessary action. And if I like saw my nephew about to run into traffic, you bet your butt I'm going to Imperious him and be like, whoa, 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 (laughs) bring yourself back. I think some of the things some of the things that we need to learn are that we're invited to learn in this text is it's not necessarily who uses the magic or what the magic is itself, but it's how it's used, what purpose it's used for. And a lot of times we have seen these spells that we consider dark magic used for power purposes. And that's what makes it wrong. No one has power over anyone. No one is superior or inferior to anyone. And no magic, I think, is superior or inferior, dark or light. I love that answer. And I do think that there are certain kinds of magic or certain kinds of tools in the non-magical world 
that we do see as just bad. Like I'm somebody who thinks like all guns are bad all the time. Mm -hmm. All guns are bad. That is bad magic that we have. Do you think that there can be some like objectively bad magic? I feel like it would be hypocritical of me to say that there is some magic or even some people that are always bad. I mean, I spent a great deal of time being frustrated with Voldemort just for being straight up bad. I feel like there are things that develop into badness, again, based on how they're used and who's using them and for what purpose. This thing I've been saying this whole time is I just want us to think harder, like really just decide like mm. what is good? What do we determine as useful and good? And what do we determine as negative and bad? And I d- agree that it shouldn't be what's handed down by the people in power as good or bad. I love your invitation to complicate these things and to question the source that, you know, we've been told these different ideas by. Yeah. And like we can we can be really straightforward and say the person telling us the story is J.K. Rowling and the source are these seven books. But who told her that story? You know, where do we get the ideas that we see written on not just the pages of these books, but the pages of our newspapers that we see written on Twitter? Like, really, I just want us to just think harder about what is the source of this information and how did someone come to those ideas and what ideas do I have that I can be challenging to just see beyond what I see? Jelly, thank you so much for being with us. Tell us, how can people find you online? Where, where can we follow your work? Yeah. Um, also here at Summer Camp, you know this, but most of my social media handles are named after candies. So there's Jolie Rancher, J-O-L-I-E Rancher on Twitter, like Jolly Rancher. And on Instagram, it's Jolie Bean, like Jelly Bean. It's J-O-L-I-E underscore Bean. And you can find me online at Jolie Doggett, J-O-L-I-E-D-O-G-G-E-T-T dot com, where all of my work for HuffPost, for Zora, for myself, all my musings about Harry Potter, <laughs> they're located on my website. Jolie, thank you so much. We just adore you. And you are always teaching me. And I'm really grateful to it. No, I really always enjoy being able to see you guys and any opportunity to think critically about this text, which I think is one of the better things that has come out of this horrific, horrific year in summer that people are being asked to think a little bit more critically about what we're reading, be that in the good and the bad ways. And I love that. I love critical thinking. Everyone should do that more, including Voldemort. I'm just so disappointed. Just think (laughs) harder. I just read the seventh book, you guys. It's it's a lot. (laughs) Bye, y'all. Bye. (laughs) One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, It's a a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards.
Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app, and when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. So, Casper, we said goodbye to Jolie, but we're still going to include a lot of other voices. So... Our next voicemail is from Sophie. Hi, Vanessa, Casper, Ariana, and the team. Um, I'm a little behind. I just finished book five, chapter 21. And in the introduction, Vanessa has a conversation with Nora McInerney. And it's pretty heavy. They talk a lot about grief. And at the end, when Vanessa gets back with Casper to begin the podcast, She jokes that it felt so good to just have her suffering met with more suffering from Nora. And I really connected with this because earlier this week I was spiraling and my usual self-parenting wasn't doing the trick. So I reached out to a friend of mine and this friend was able to just sit with all of the issues I was having and just to validate that like, yeah, shit is fucked. And it felt so good to have that response and space. And um, I'm curious about the the trickiness of unburdening with someone else who is also quite burdened. This friend of mine has had a horrible six months between the pandemic and a breakup and housing issues and a job ending. And I was kind of hesitant to bring up my issues with them uh, for fear of overwhelming them and being selfish about like the resources of their heart. But they actually really valued having the chance to connect with me and care for me and to have my misery kind of be a distraction from theirs. So I'm I'm curious about about how that how that can work, how sometimes if you don't share what's happening with someone else who's suffering, it kind of doesn't help either of you. And uh, I also wanted to say that uh, in response to your conversation with Nora, I have no interest in being a turtle of any sort, but it is truly one of my heart's deepest desires to be a sea otter. Thank you. First of all, Sophie, you are incorrect. Being a turtle would be so much better than being a sea otter. Sea otters are together all the time. They never have alone time. Oh, that sounds horrible. Turtles can be with other people, but they can also be by themselves. Yeah, I really feel what you're saying, Sophie. And 
I think one of the key things is like what you did, which I loved about your story, which is like you kind of asked permission to be like, hey, can I share this? Like, can I ask for your caregiving, essentially? Because sometimes it is really helpful to be reminded that you're not the only one who's really struggling with something and to feel like even though someone else's suffering is different, that you're not in a hole by yourself. That can be a gift. But there are other times when we really just can't. And and so I think making sure that we're asking express permission and to not attach any sort of blame or frustration if the answer is no. For me, what it looks like in my life is I have just a couple of friends where our friendship is really oriented around that kind of conversation. Like we have expressed permission to text our ugliest thoughts to each other without any expectation that the other person has to respond. Like it's just an outlet where I know I can say anything and everything and like nothing's going to be held against me and everything is welcome. And it just like, it feels like we've carved a groove into the wood of the friendship and it can just hold whatever we're sending back and forth. And it sounds like that that's exactly what you're doing with your friend as well. So I'm really glad that you have that person and, and that they have you. Yeah, Casper, I really love what you're saying, that it's something that I think is established over time mm. through good communication and through sort of like active validation. I know that there are times in my life that someone will just start complaining to me and I'm like, I don't, I don't want to yeah. hear this right now. <laughs> like I'm having a real problem and this is not a real problem. Whereas there are other people who could text me the pettiest thing while I am like waiting in the ICU. <laughs> and I'd be like, totally, I can't believe she said that. <laughs> I guess what I want to say is like, we're all going to mess up, right? One of the most important parts of any friendship is forgiveness and forgiving ourselves. And I know I'm scared if somebody were to call me and say, can I complain about something? I would be really scared to say, no, I'm sorry. I don't have the capacity to do that right now. No matter how true it is, that's like not something I feel really confident about doing. Mm. I would be really afraid of hurting them or of cutting them off before telling me something really important, even though I don't feel like I have the ability to carry that right now. Mm. So mm. I, I think that everything that you're saying is right. I think of you as one of the people who I can just text such petty things. And you do. <laughs> and I do. And every time you either don't respond and I know that like it went into a non-judgmental void or right, like you'll just validate. You'll be like, yeah, that person sucks. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> and I also think like one of the ways in which we build trust in a friendship is by revealing sometimes the petty, uglier parts of ourselves that like we don't want the whole world to see, but like someone needs to see, otherwise it's just bad. And so it can like these things can actually be ways to a deeper friendship as well. This next voicemail is from Anonymous. Hi, Vanessa, Casper, and Ariana. I just listened to the episode where you discussed the chapter Magic is Might through the lens of truth. In it, you both said something to the effect of, truth is power. And I believe that too. But I also wanted to extend that idea even further to talk about the times that that power can be harmful. It made me think of an incident that happened to me about a year and a half ago when I experienced a robbery where my purse was stolen. I made a decision to call the police, which is not a decision I would make today. When I was asked what the perpetrators had looked like, I honestly remembered hardly anything. These were people that had come in and out of my life in a few minutes, and it was honestly just all a blur. Instead of just saying that I couldn't remember, I told the police the things that I knew to be true, which was very little. 
that it had been a large group of perpetrators, that they appeared to be teenagers, and that they were black. All of these things were true, and that really was all I could remember. But taken together, those truths, when told to the wrong people, put black teenagers in my neighborhood in danger. Luckily, nothing really happened as a result of my call. The police showed up an hour late and were obviously just there to take the report and then leave. But this story reminds me that truth is not neutral, and that sometimes sharing a truth with the wrong person is not simply truth-telling, but a complicity. In the books, Marietta tells the truth about the DA to Umbridge, and that truth caused tremendous harm. So, my question for you is, what are the ways that truth can cause harm, particularly in an unjust society, as is portrayed in the Harry Potter books, and as we are seeing all around us right now? Thank you for all that you do. Your podcast never fails to be as thought-provoking as it is entertaining. First of all, I just want to thank you for this voicemail. I do think that you're modeling for us a deconstruction of white supremacy and trying to teach yourself in a really important way. I just want to name that you say in your voicemail that luckily nothing bad happened as a result of this. And I just want to say that we don't know that, right? We never know the result of our our actions. It could be that two months later, a police officer has a different interaction with a kid because of this report. I just want to name that. You know, you ask in your voicemail, when does truth cause harm? I mean, I think that truth causes harm whenever it is reifying ideas that we find to be immoral. Truth caused harm when Xenophilius called the Death Eaters and said, Harry is here, right? Like, he only said something truthful, but he was validating a violent desire to capture Harry. And a lie is good when Hermione disfigures Harry in just a few chapters to try to protect Harry from the Death Eaters, right? I think that whenever truth is going to validate something that we don't like about the world, I think we need to think really hard as to whether or not it's a truth that needs to be named. I also think it's interesting what truths we share in what circumstances, I think that we saw a lot of that in the Me Too movement where men would come forward and share Mm. their experience as perpetrators and they would put themselves at the center of the story and their stories were true and their stories maybe in the long run are important as a record of this time, but it's not the story that we want to be the center right now. You know, we are trying to curate a moment in which the center of the story is victims' experiences. And so I I also just sometimes think it's timing. It's like your truth is not welcome here right now. We are busy addressing another truth and a truth that we find to be more urgent in this moment. I also just want to say that we should all have people to call when we have been robbed, right? Like we should all be able to feel safe and live in a world in which we can be assured and, and trusting of institutions that are supposed to protect us and support us. And so I absolutely affirm what you're pointing us to, which is the institutionalized racism within the police. And I, I guess I, I want us to think about, even if we look at the text, right? Like, I wish that the trio had people to call who they could trust, who would help them as they're having to navigate a state that's been overtaken by a fascist. And I'm sorry that we don't have that right now because we all deserve that. Our next voicemail is from Skylar, and just a trigger warning for this one. Skylar describes an experience of stalking, 
So if you don't want to listen to that, just skip forward two minutes and you'll move past the voicemail and come back to us talking. And if you don't want to hear our responses to it, just keep fast forwarding until you hear another voicemail beep. Hi, Casper, Vanessa, Ariana, and everyone on the Harry Potter and the Sacred Text team. I'm playing catch up, so I just recently listened to an episode from the beginning of book seven where you were talking about Voldemort as stalking Harry and how when somebody stalks you, you have to learn a lot about them even though you're not obsessed with them, they're obsessed with you. And without getting too much into it, I have a biological father who has been in prison since I was in middle school for awful things he did to my mom, including stalking her. He's also tried to do things from prison, like paid to have me followed home from school. So I was thinking about how he affects the lives of me and my family, even though we don't want him to, and how I'm forced to think about him sometimes because he affects how I can act online and the things I can share about myself, that kind of thing. And I had just never really thought about how Harry learns about Voldemort immediately upon learning about the wizarding world and how this means he has to always be on his guard. My mom sheltered me and my siblings from what my biological father had done, so for a long time I didn't know to be so worried about him. It made me wonder about Hagrid telling Harry that he thought Voldemort wasn't gone for good, and how easy it could have been to let this child feel safe, but he told him, possibly to make sure he knew what risks he would be taking. And I just, I can't imagine being a child and thinking someone is out there who wants to murder you. It makes me appreciate so much more how Harry acts like a regular kid and finds joy in little things and doesn't let fear guide his life to an extreme extent. So I want to bless him for being a child and still making friends and trusting people in this new world he's introduced to. And I want to bless everyone who who lets their guard down sometimes, despite there being every reason for them not to. Thanks. Skylar, thank you so much for sharing just a taste of your experience and helping us see just a whole new element of Harry's life and and especially in those early pages i just never thought about it this way and it honestly it gives me chills skylar you also helped me see not just the beautiful ways in which harry is a normal kid but i'm rereading books one and two right now for our community class and i was getting so annoyed with harry i was like why do you always have to stick your nose in (laughs) other people's business like dumbledore's got it handled mcgonagall's got it handled this isn't your concern But of course he does, right? He has been told that this man wants to kill him. Of course he's going to get involved. He sees all of these things that's happening to him. And that had never occurred to me that he's been forced by circumstances to see himself in this story. And I also just, I want to add to your blessings. I just want to add a blessing to your mom. That must have been such a hard thing for her to carry And what a beautiful offering that she protected you from it for as long as she could. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. 
And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And our final voicemail for today's episode is a blessing for Hermione from Marcella. What's up, Casper and Vanessa? This is Marcella calling from San Francisco, California. And I have been listening to your podcast now nonstop. And I just had this urge to call in and leave a voicemail because I feel that I really need to bless Hermione. I know she gets a lot of blessings because she is a bomb, but... I heard another caller call in and talk about Hermione's beaded bag. And she said that she has this type of beaded bag, quote unquote, which is like a box. And she prepares toys and she puts all these things in there for her family. And um, I was really admiring her story. And I was thinking about my beaded bag. Um, I work in construction. I'm an electrician. And every single job I'm on, I'm pretty much pretty much the only woman. And I deal with massive sexism. I mean, these guys think a woman should not be on the job. They do not know how to work with the tools, you know. And every morning I get my toolbox on my cart and my toolbox is my beaded bag. And I have all my tools in there and I could fix any problem. I could build anything. And I really feel that there's a part of Hermione in me like there's an alter ego in me that's like Hermione and I feel like all women have that Hermione in in us and she's fierce and she's unapologetic and she's intelligent and intelligent and knowledgeable and I just feel her come out in me when I get into a meeting and people think that I don't know anything or they'll literally treat me as if I'm invisible And I, you know, my inner Hermione comes out and I say, 
actually your measurement is wrong and this is the correct way or no the code says this in that in that book and for a long time I would always say sorry I think you're wrong right or no actually uh, like apologize and I realized that I don't have to apologize for them being incorrect on their job and um, I just feel like over the past couple years, I've really been tapping into my Hermione and saying, I am smart, I'm powerful, I'm beautiful, and I don't have to apologize for that. And I will do well in this job, no matter what people tell me. You're going to put me on the hardest tasks. You're going to try to say, I don't belong in the trade because I'm a woman. I'm not strong enough. Okay, let me go to my beaded bag and let me see how I'm going to do this because I know I can. So I just wanted to bless Hermione for being fearless and 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 inspiring. And I just wanted to bless all the other women out there who are on a job that's physically demanding and and they are constantly silenced and and looked upon as this person who is incompetent. And I just want to bless you guys and say, we have it. We we can do it. We are smart enough. We are strong enough. And just wait because we're coming. And I just wanted to say that. So thank you so much for the podcast. Thank you so much for allowing me to listen to the podcast at work because it's my place of peace. <laughs> um, and I appreciate everything you do. So bless Hermione and bless all the women who we all have a little Hermione in us. So let's just tap into that on a daily, right? All right. Thank you. Marcella. <laughs> Blessings for you. Oh, you made me cry. <laughs> I'm so grateful for you, for everything you do. And the whole time you were talking, I was thinking about my sister who works in a very physical environment where she's often the only woman. And I was just thinking of all the times where she felt exactly, she feels exactly the way that you're describing. And I I love you and I appreciate you and I appreciate everyone out there who's struggling with the, <clears throat> that's being sent at them by their colleagues, by the men who are their colleagues. And I'm, I'm your biggest fan right now. Thank you. First of all, I, I want to thank you for letting us be part of your workday in that way. That feels so special to me that mm. as you're out there being a badass, we are part of it. And the other thing is I feel very blessed by your voicemail. I love the invitation for women to see their power as Hermione's beaded bag. I really, compared to most women in media, get very little hate or pushback. But every time, you know, someone tells me that my upspeak is annoying or my valley girl accent is annoying or my vocal fry is annoying, I think that you've really invited me to see my voice or my writing as my beaded bag, that these are the resources that I have to offer the world. And when somebody is questioning them, it's like, hey, this is the gift that I have to offer the world. I wish I had more tactile ones like you, but this is what I've got and it's my beaded bag. Mm. 
Well, with that, friends, you've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and you can find other listeners who are discussing this episode and all of the others in our Facebook common room. Please join our local groups and come and join the community of people supporting us on Patreon. We're so, so grateful to all of you for making this show possible. Send us a voicemail or leave us a review on iTunes. We love to read and listen to every single one. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 23, Malfoy Manor, through the theme of legacy. This episode is produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our music is by Ivan Paisau, Nick Boll, and we're distributed by Acast. We want to offer a special thanks this week to Jolie Doggett for joining us and to all of the people who sent in voicemails this week, Destiny, Sophie, Skylar, and Marcella. We, of course, also want to thank Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Megan Kelly, and Stephanie Paulsell. Thanks, and we'll talk to you next week. Why are you so obsessed with me, Voldemort? I mean, probably. It's that <laughs> body. So cool. Yeah, exactly. It's that body. <laughs> it would be amazing if Harry turned to Voldemort and said that. <laughs> Why are you so obsessed with me? I'm just trying to go to school. <laughs> Stop trying, trying to, to make Horcruxes happen. Voldemort. <laughs> Voldemort cared about Harry's schooling, never messed with him during exams. Like, never. It was like, look, he valued Hogwarts. He did. <laughs>